Michael Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And once again, I am bringing you a review of The Rings of Power. This time it's episode four. And, um, meh. Um, the thing that kind of got me the most about this episode was that not a lot happens, not a lot is really good, and not a lot is really bad. But there's definitely nothing very good, and there are a few things that are pretty bad. So, I'm going to, again, as I usually do, kind of give my spoiler-free impressions, and then I'll get into spoilers later on in the video. Uh, and I'll also, my wife watched this vid this particular episode as well. Her overall impression was that it was enjoyable to watch while she was doing a, an artsy crafts project that she was doing while watching it. And therefore, take that for what it worth. <laughs> she uh, likes to do that a lot, in fairness, with a lot of shows. She doesn't always pay attention to just the things she's watching. She, she's a very good multitasker, and she said that this was like the first episode that she felt like she could kind of do both at once. And not having that kind of brain, I'm not sure I understand it or what exactly that implies to other people, but there you go. Um, Mostly, she found Elrond's story enjoyable, as before. Um, the lack of Harfoots, she found nice, that the Harfoot plotline doesn't come up in this episode, and frankly, I like that aspect of it, too. Um, but mostly, her uh, impressions were, you know, it was an enjoyable watch. I think she said that she rated it about a 7. She liked... Muriel, the queen, as a character in that she seemed to have a little more depth than somebody like, say, Theo, uh, who is kind of a, not not really much depth going on in his character. We do get a little bit of him in this episode. The one major positive, I think, about this particular episode is we didn't get a whole lot of new stuff to keep up with, but we also... We did get a couple of new characters thrown into the mix, but not a lot happens. But we also don't get a lot of anything else. The plot doesn't go much of anywhere in either of any of the three major plot lines that they cover. That's Elrond's plot line, the Numenor plot line with Galadriel and Halbrand, and then the Southlands plot line where we actually do get Arondir and the human village folk. Not a lot happens in any of those plot lines, and for an hour-long episode, that seems to me kind of wasteful. And one of the things that has occurred to me as time has gone on, and I've kind of reflected back on the way things have gone so far with the, with the season as a whole, and in particular after this one, it just seems like there's a ton of scenes that we could do without that don't really seem to be adding to the story. They're just creating drama for the sake of drama, but not really contributing to the plot. And the thing about Tolkien is he's not writing personal drama. Tolkien's writing is mostly about, you know, events that happen and, and overcoming obstacles and things like that, but it's not about interpersonal drama and it's not about, you know, psychological drama. It's not about most of those things. Some of his writings kind of get into that a little bit, like the story of Aldarion and Arendis which probably would have made a really good several-episode thing, you know, to put on television because there is a lot of stuff you could explore there. But most of the stories that he wrote 
have nothing or little, very little to do with just personal drama and that kind of thing. But that's kind of what seems to be driving this series so far, because most of what's happened is either some world building or just people getting into tense situations with other people. That's kind of all we've gotten so far. Another general impression that I've been building and that, again, seems kind of carried on through this episode is that if we were to liken this adaptation of Tolkien to a painting, I would say that the frame is nice looking, but the painting itself is kind of sloppy and amateurish. And by that I mean a lot of the thought that went into this has to do with peripheral things and not the substance, the core of what it really ought to be. Fundamentally, Tolkien was about telling good stories, and so far we don't have a good story. We have the build-up to what might be a halfway decent story, and maybe even a good story, but nothing has gone anywhere to the point where we can really make any kind of confident judgment about that, and it's taking an awfully long time to get there. We're now halfway through this season, and practically nothing has happened. And, you know, when I say that the frame is nice, I ended up watching the first of Corey Olson's Rings and Realms episodes where he does his analysis of the show. It's not so much a review as like a a lot of what he does with his Tolkien-related stuff is literary analysis of Tolkien's writings, and here it's more like a film analysis, not to critique it per se, but just to kind of get an idea of the themes and, you know, how they're approaching certain things from a, you know, a film adaptation standpoint and what he talked about you know if if he's right in terms of what the creators of the show are attempting to do the kinds of connections they're attempting to make with their visual storytelling that's smart and impressive and all that but if you overlay that just on top of a meh plot it's like okay so you're clever enough to make you know, a a nice veneer that you're connecting ideas, but you're not telling just a good story underneath it all. And that's, to to me, a problem. I mean, fundamentally, what we want out of a Tolkien adaptation, or even a Tolkien fan fiction, at least what I want, is a decent story. I want a good story that, you know, all those other things are nice too. And Tolkien was really good at putting really good paintings in really good frames, as it were. Because, and I think this was actually part of the thing, is like you you start with the painting and then you put the frame around it and that's what makes it work. If you just start with a frame and you're like, okay, well, how do I fill this frame? That's kind of the backwards process. And it seems like they're going about it that way to me. And I'll get into a few specifics as to, you know, why I'm putting it this way in a little bit when I get more into the spoiler stuff. But some of it has to do with the writing. Like the writing is still not great. Most of the writing in this one was not horrible, but there were a few things that I was like, why would you say that in a Tolkien adaptation? Uh, Queen Muriel at one point says something about hammering out Numenor's future, and I'm like, that's such a clumsy way to say that in a, in a Tolkien-inspired story. That's terrible. Most of the dialogue and most of the that kind of stuff was not very bad in this episode. That was just one example that was kind of a low point for me. Another thing that I am finding really annoying in this episode in particular is that they have 
finally managed to really kind of overtly inject politics in it, and I'll explain that again when I get to the spoiler stuff. But, I mean, from the thumbnail, you can tell at least kind of where I'm going with this. Uh, but it's, to me, the politics, it's not even about whether I agree or disagree with the politics of what seems to be the politics of the showrunners or whoever is inserting this. It's about the politics being in it at all. It's one thing for political things to happen within the story that makes sense within the terms of the story itself. And this is another comment my wife had. The political thing that comes up seems very forced, artificial, not in keeping with the world that it's in. It doesn't seem like it really belongs there. And so it it very much seems like just a modern political issue imposed into the story. And whether that was done for the purpose of kind of uh, propagandizing for a particular view or not, I don't care. What I care about is the fact that when I read Tolkien, I want to read a good fantasy story about a time which fictionally might have happened a long, long time ago and has nothing to do with our modern age except in the sense that, you know, the kinds of fundamental human things that we all go through is always the same. Human nature is the same past, present, future. Just There's no getting around that. But the specific kinds of issues that we deal with and talk about on a day-to-day basis, I don't want to find that in a fantasy series. I want to find good, you know, fantasy that just takes me back to like a heroic legendary past that has no connection really otherwise with, you know, what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis in my own world. I don't care if they agree with my politics. I don't care if they disagree with my politics. You start injecting modern politics into this show, I'm not going to like it. And I have a vague suspicion and it's only a vague suspicion that they're going to go further down that rabbit trail. And if they start going more and more down that rabbit trail, I'm going to get really angry and I'm going to just really hate the show if they do it too much. So my final comment as far as the overall impressions here, most of the show was just meh. The main thing that I found interesting was, again, Elrond's plotline. This is the only plotline that I'm really kind of invested in in terms of liking the characters or caring how it develops, but the only issue is it doesn't seem to have gotten much of anywhere, and even then it seems kind of weirdly rushed. It's like they wanted to achieve something in this episode with Elrond's plotline, and then they just, they kind of achieved it, and then they just did it as fast and and, and as efficiently as they could without really making it a natural storyline, really, and I'll get into the spoiler section what I mean about that. But that's kind of where I'm at with this episode. It's a weird one because lots of people think it's the best episode yet. Lots of people think it's the worst episode yet. A lot of people are just like, this is weird. I'm kind of in the this is weird category. And I think the reason for me why it's weird is because at this point, I'm starting to just not care. And part of the reason I'm starting to not care is because so many of the plot lines are just not going anywhere. So many of the scenes seem pointless so many of the characters that we're introduced to don't get a chance to get developed. I mean, by this point, we're already up to, I don't even know how many characters that are at least major players, even if not, you know, regular appearances. For example, we get Celebrimbor in this this particular episode, but for like 30 seconds. And we've only seen him in one other episode, really, for any length of time. 
and there's just not anything going on with him. I mean, we get a brief glimpse into his character, but barely anything. And then we're off to meet Durin, and then we meet his wife, and then we meet his dad, and then we meet... I mean, we've got so many characters to keep up with. They're, they've introduced too much, too soon, too fast, and it's making it hard to get invested in any one of them. And the one that we've spent the most time with is Galadriel, and she's the most dislikable character of all. So with that said, let's move into the spoiler section and get into some of the specifics of what I don't like. I'm going to kick off with the Southlands again, and the reason being the big thing that happened in the last episode that was a, a major cliffhanger was, who is Adar? And we don't know. At the end of this episode, we still haven't got really much of any clue who Adar is, except that he's probably an elf. He's a dark-haired, elf-looking guy, except he's even not very good-looking for an elf. And that's not just because he's got a massive scar, it's because he's got like this really prominent cheekbone thing going on. And Anyway, we meet him. Arondir asks him, who are you? He asks him, what are you? And he, I think he even asks a third question, but... We really get no answer other than Adar mentions that, you know, you've been told many lies. And then he says something like to set them all right, it would require the creation of a new world, which, you know, that would require the action of the gods. And I'm not a god, at least not yet. So is he aspiring to be like one of the Valar? What is he? Is he Sauron? Is he... I mean, the, the speculation is everywhere on the internet. And I don't really care at this point who he is in terms of, like, speculating. I, I care who he is in the sense that I'd like to know, but this goes back to a criticism I made in my episode 3 review, where it seems like they're just dropping so many mysteries on us that they expect that to be what keeps us coming back. And I'm like... And, you know, in fairness, some people like this stuff. Robert Obert in Deep Geek mentioned in uh, a private, more, more or less private conversation that he actually likes having to think about all these different things. And I'm, I like thinking about things. If I'm going to watch like a murder mystery, I like to be able to think about it and see if I can solve it. Or, you know, I like to be able to do this kind of stuff, but I think I got burned so bad from the TV series lost that these days it's like, if you can't give me a really good compelling reason why something is a mystery and why I should have to think about it, I feel like I'm just being strung along. And, and this seems like the same thing. We don't know who Adar is. That's a mystery we've got to figure out. We don't know what the black sword that Theo found is. We've got to figure that out. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Who's the stranger? Who's, you know... So many things that have to be explained that we all want to know, and they keep giving us cliffhangers and mysteries to look into, and it seems like they're intentionally trying to set up various different people as potentially being Sauron or potentially on his side, and I'll get a little bit more into that as well. Actually, it comes up in the Southlands episode because one of the orcs mentions that the Starfall was a sign that Sauron is going to rise again. Or, no, it wasn't one of the orcs. It was actually Waldreg, who is the old guy from the human village. He mentions that that's a sign that Sauron is coming back. And that kind of comes at the very end of the episode, but it's like that would seem to imply that the stranger who comes on the meteor might be Sauron, but I'm fairly certain it's probably not. <laughs> it wouldn't make much sense. Like the, the 
stranger came out of the West, which implies that he can't be Sauron. But then if it came out of the West, why would the meteor be a sign of Sauron rising? I mean, there's just so many weird... Anyway, point being, this is a criticism that I have, is it seems like they just dump all this on us to keep us coming back, and Adar is no exception. We finally meet Adar face-to-face in this episode. We get him for all of a few minutes, and then he releases a Rondir to go back and deliver a message to the humans who are now living in the tower that the elves were stationed at. And, okay, you couldn't send a message any other way. You had to let this guy go. Uh, anyway, so he lets him go. Meanwhile, Bronwyn is kind of acting as a makeshift leader of the humans who are staying in the tower and, and where the elves were stationed, and they're running low on food. Because apparently nobody thought, hey, since we're all deserting our village, we should bring along our food stores. And apparently leaving it is not an option. They can't go west and try to find better places to live, hunt, grow, whatever. They're just going to stay there and keep hunting until they starve. Theo has the bright idea of, why don't we go into the village and go get more food, which seems like a smart idea, right? You know, during the day when the orcs probably aren't going to be around or there's going to be very few of them and they're stuck indoors. But Bronn was like, no, we're not doing that. And, you know, understandably, because based on what we saw in the one orc fight we've had so far, they are superhumanly strong. So even if there's only a couple of them, if you go try to find food and you... Well, inevitably what happens, of course, is Theo takes the other boy that he's friends with, who is kind of a troublemaker... And they go into town, and he's like, well, I want to go in the tavern and see if we can find more food in there. And the ki- the other kid's like, no way, man. <laughs> I'm not going in there. Uh, so he leaves, and Theo goes in the tavern. And, of course, there's an orc in there because Theo's an idiot, and he decides to just take unnecessary risks. Anyway, he starts fighting the orc. The orc hits him on the arm and makes him bleed because apparently Theo has this magic plot armor where he can only ever get hit on the arm. Uh, and naturally the blood starts going up to the sword which he pulls out because he carried it with him and it starts reforming the blade like a whole lot uh, you know way more than the first time we saw it and the orc recognizes the blade which implies maybe that's what they're searching for and all this stuff uh, and he says give it to me or whatever and Theo basically just kind of does a slight cut and nicks the orc and he runs out and hides he ends up hiding in a well the orcs are hunting around while the sun is behind a cloud because they don't want to be in direct sunlight. And Theo stays there for, we don't know exactly how long, except we find out later how long, because he comes out at night, which is like the stupidest time to do it. But apparently he couldn't come out during the day anytime, which means that the clouds must have been covering the sun for hours, because the sun was not, like, just over the horizon when he dipped into the well. And anyway, he comes out at night, right when the orcs are going to be the most able to, you know, be out and do something about it, and he gets found, but then Arondir happens to show up right then and kill the orc that finds him, and then they both run away. And this is where we get the scene where Arondir manages to grab an arrow out of midair And it's actually worse than in the promotional material because he, like, turns around and catches it. It's not like he even sees it coming from a distance. He turns around because Theo falls down, trips, 
and he's like, okay, I'm going to have to turn around and cover, and he catches it in midair after literally, I mean, it's like his reflexes would have to be so incredible. Now, could else be like that, based on what Tolkien said in some places? Maybe it could, uh, but mm, even at that, that's kind of hard to believe. That's not really a major complaint that I have, though. What I do have a complaint with is, while they're in the woods running from these orcs and he's trying to shoot and keep them at bay, and he shoots a few of them, Bronwyn shows up because she's found out, of course, that Theo is gone, and she comes out there and meets him in the woods, and then they all run out of the woods, still being chased by orcs. They turn around at bay outside the woods, and then the sun's coming up. Which means that since Theo managed to go from the tower to the town during the day, and it was still, you know, the sun was still relatively high, it couldn't have taken that long to get back. And that means he stayed in that well practically all night. Now, if that's just not stupid, I don't know what's stupid. So, anyway, that's just another example of how the writers can't manage to do, like, a convincing story that makes any sense. It's just... Is so dumb to me. Uh, anyway, they end up getting back to the tower, and Arondir delivers Adar's message, which is basically, you can all either swear fealty to Adar and forsake your claim on you know the lands that you've lived on forever, or he's just going to attack the tower. Which, again, it's like, why not just move off west? You're facing a giant horde of orcs, and you've got one elf warrior and villages of farmers like really just go (laughs) find somebody that has an army like why would you just sit around maybe they will do that i don't know i have a sneaking suspicion somebody's going to show up and save them at the last minute but i'll get to that later uh and meanwhile theo is sitting down kind of nursing his wound and waldreg the old guy comes up and he starts talking about the sword that he knows that Theo stole out of his barn. Turns out it's Waldreg's barn. I never caught that before. I don't think it was actually specifically said. Anyway, Theo at first tries to say, like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, nah, come on, man. And then he shows him his arm, and he's got, like, a mark on his arm. And I'm not, I, I couldn't get a good enough look at it to see if it was the same Mordor symbol that was on the sword and on Finrod's body and everything else. But then... Theo has a wound that's kind of vaguely in the same shape, at least it's supposed to be, but I can't tell because it looks mostly like just red dots and not a very obvious pattern. And Waldreg goes on and talks about how it's the return of Morgoth's beautiful servant, which is probably a reference to the fact that Anatar is, you know, a fair-seeming guise that Sauron takes on. But anyway, you know, he says, Have you heard of him, lad? Have you heard of Sauron? Uh, and that's, that's where that scene comes from. And you get the impression that now he's going to be like recruiting Theo to the service of Sauron, which of course the question is, how does Waldreg know about Sauron? Is he like the descendant of some guy who's just been handed down the sword for generations saying, when Sauron comes back, get ready, or like, what's going on? Uh, but also where does the symbol come from? Like Theo got hit in the arm, but not... I mean, does does the fact that he got a connection with the sword, is that what made the symbol pop up? It's not clear at all. Anyway, that's kind of where the Southlands part of this ends. And, I mean, what did we achieve? We still have no idea who Adar is, really. 
we don't really know much of anything that we didn't already know. Our own deer is free, and the villagers are in the same position they were the last time, basically. And Theo might be becoming a bad guy somehow. Okay. Moving on to my favorite plot line, which is Elrond. Uh, we get a few seconds with Celebrimbor where he's basically like, I don't know what's up with Durin, but he's either avoiding me or he's hiding something. Can you find out what Elrond? Elrond goes and finds out. Uh, and that's all we see of Celebrimbor. Uh, but he, so Elrond goes and talks to Disa, and we get the impression that Elrond hasn't seen Durin for a while either. And Disa is like, well, he's off quartz mining. And this isn't stated, but Elrond apparently knows where the quartz mine is because he's like, well, if he's so far away, why are you cooking his favorite dinner now? And why is his pickaxe still here? And she's like, oh, you don't, you don't mine these like that, you pluck the court, or pluck, I might, might not be the word she used, but at any rate, he, she comes up with an excuse, and she says that the soup she's making has to, you know, sit for a few days. Elrond, of course, is not buying it, because she's obviously lying. Uh, <laughs> so he ends up in this one spot where he's kind of overlooking where he can see Disa and Durin talking from a distance when he comes back. And we see them talking up close, and he's reading their lips from a distance, and he discovers that they're talking about some kind of mine under the mirror mirror. Okay, we got a reference to the mirror mirror, that's nice. Uh, but then he goes to figure out, you know, how to get into this mine to find out what's going on. And of course, one issue here is like, why do you need to know what Durin is doing exactly, Elrond? That's kind of weird. Uh, there's no particular reason why that's ever stated. Celebrimbor doesn't say, you know, the work is falling behind because Durin is off doing something else and I can't get any, you know, cooperation from him. In fact, the work, work is proceeding so fast that they're already, you know, that you can see an image of the tower when he's talking to Celebrimbor. And it looks like they've come a really long way, which implies a lot of time has passed. And that's another issue with this show is the time stuff because some timelines that are connected by the meteor to all the other timelines seem to be progressing way faster than some of the other timelines. So that's like, you know, one of these days I may try to just sit down and like map out everything and explain in detail why this is problematic, but I think they're going to run into some serious issues with that if they keep going the way they're going. At any rate, there's no particular reason why Elrond should have to figure this out. Nevertheless, he does. He goes there and he's, he finds where the door must be because he can hear wind coming out from under it, which seems like a very bad oversight for a dwarvish magic door because, I mean, they make them so tight you can't even see them. Why would there be air coming through it? Ah, anyway... So he's trying to figure out how to open it, and then he realizes that the thing that Disa's kids were chanting earlier uh, might be the password, so he says it, and sure enough, the door opens. He goes in, and he's kind of looking around, and Durin shows up, and he's like, I knew you were here just to spy on us, blah, blah, blah. Well, Elrond puts his fears at rest somehow. Um, it, I mean, if it, if I were in Durin's shoes at that point, I'd be like, yeah, I don't trust you at all. Get out. We're not helping you anymore. Because at that point, it really does look like Elrond is just trying to snoop. And that's, you know, a fear that Durin and his father have had. Or especially Durin's father, anyway. So, and yes, Durin's father is also Durin, 
but I'm just doing it this way to keep it straight, guys. So, um, they start talking, and Elrond says, you know, he, he gets his fears under control, and Durin finally says, well, here's what we found, and he hands him a piece of mithril, and basically he says it's really dangerous to mine, which seems odd. He also says that Disa detected it when they were doing something with a gold seam, which makes me think that it has to do with what she was saying in episode two about resonating. Uh, and, I mean, how do you... Whatever. I'm not even going to ask questions about it. It's just not worth worrying about. It's not a big thing, but it, it seems kind of weird. While he's talking to Elrond, a cave-in happens in the back, and a bunch of dwarves who are still back there working get buried. Disa ends up singing this song later, which I at first thought was like a dirge for the dead dwarves. It turns out she was actually pleading to the mountain to basically let them out without dying. And sure enough, they actually do rescue all the dwarves. But Durin's father says, all right, we're not mining this stuff anymore. And this has Durin, you know, his panties are completely in a wad. He is so mad about it. And he basically says, I'd like to tell him off and never talk to him again. And then Elrond gives him a story about how for years he used to look up at the stars to his father, Arendil, and wonder, you know, if he would approve of what Elrond has done or be disappointed in him. And then he's like, well, I finally realized it's like, I wouldn't even care what his judgment was. I would just like one more conversation with him. And this was a really nice scene. You know, it it's Elrond doing what he does best, which is, as my wife puts it, exp- you know, showing some emotional intelligence and some empathy to boot. Uh, he's like the only character that really can do it, seemingly. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he gets Durin to calm down, and Durin's like, yeah, you're right, I really shouldn't be thinking about my dad like that. So Durin goes and talks to his dad and apologizes for being stubborn and whatever. And his dad, you know, basically says, there's nothing to forgive, it's okay. And Durin then says, I've been invited to go to Linden with Elrond, should I go? And the dad says, well, you know, what do you think? Do you trust him? He's like, I don't, I I think I, you know, I trust him. But my intuition, he asks him, well, what about your intuition? He says, I think there's something else afoot. And he's like, okay, go to Linden, see what's going on. Of course, at some point when Elrond and Durin were talking, I forgot to mention he Durin made him swear not to reveal what he showed him about the Mithril to anybody else. Now, I and others have made a big deal about taking oaths because there was a promo scene where we see Gilgalad talking to Elrond about, you know, breaking an oath basically to help his own people. And oaths are generally a thing you want to avoid in Tolkien <laughs> as a rule. Uh, and... Here, I don't have as much of a problem with it, because, as I mentioned earlier, Elrond doesn't particularly have a good reason to be sneaking around and trying to discover this stuff, so um, he's kind of already imposing and shouldn't know this stuff anyway. So I don't really have a problem with Elrond swearing to keep this a secret, because it's an information he's not really entitled to have. So I don't have a big problem of it with it from that perspective. It'll be really interesting to see how that ends up playing in later based on the promotional videos we got. At any rate, that's pretty much all we get from Elrond's storyline. So we're basically, what we got was, oh, they discovered Mithril. Oh, Elrond's going to keep it secret. Oh, Durin's going to go to Linden and have a chat with other elves. Okay.
Now we come to Numenor, and this is where things get really dumb, because Galadriel is still as hot-headed and stupid as ever. She has an audience with Muriel, the queen, and she's trying to enlist her help to help the people of the Southlands. Muriel is resistant to the idea. Galadriel basically gets hot-headed and says, well, how about I talk to the person with the real power, and that's your daddy? Which, of course, doesn't go very well. <laughs> now... In fairness, Muriel is kind of stupid in this scene, too, because she accuses Galadriel of stealing documents from their Hall of Lore, which is the dumbest thing to accuse her of, considering Elendil took her to the Hall of Lore, escorted her the whole way, and came back with her. Really? You're accusing Galadriel of stealing it? Like, clearly she didn't sneak in like a burglar, grab stuff, and walk out and not tell anybody. Like... Uh, so anyway, both characters are being kind of stupid in this scene. At any rate, Galadriel's hot-headedness, of course, gets her in trouble. And she gets thrown in jail right next to Halbrand. Halbrand, of course, is the smarter of the two, despite being no more than 30 years old, a human and not Galadriel, who has, like, the best perception ability in the entirety of Tolkien's universe. And he's the one that gets her to realize that what really got Muriel upset was talking about her dad and wanting to talk to her dad. And it's like, Galadriel in this, and, okay, here's the thing, guys. Galadriel doesn't just become a mind-reading superpower in The Lord of the Rings because she has Ninja. She was always super perceptive, according to Tolkien, and I think that's true in pretty much every version of the story that he wrote of her. Uh, it goes all the way back to before she left Valinor. She was always really good at reading the hearts and minds of other people. So the fact that she is completely idiotic and completely hot-headed in this episode definitely goes against the characterization in the stories. Is it the worst thing they've done? Probably not, but it's really annoying, and Galadriel being a complete hothead, unable to see anything in front of her face, is getting really stinking old. And I thought for a minute that Halbrand got enough, you know, through to her that she was going to finally calm down and do something. But wouldn't you know it, Farazan comes in with a few guards and says, Well, the Queen has made her decision. You're getting on the next boat to, to Middle-earth and you're going to be out of our hair. And, you know, what they're going to do with Halbrand is not stated. <laughs> but they're getting Galadriel out. So they open the door, Galadriel comes out, puts her hands up to be chained, apparently they're going to handcuff her, and then she fakes it, attacks the guards, there's three of them, and by the way, they're all way bigger than her. This is another problem, I've mentioned this before, Galadriel in this show is not nearly tall enough, she's supposed to be like as tall as a guy, and this is, you know, Galadriel in this show is not tall, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But these other three, these guards, they're all pretty big, and they're all in full armor and presumably have weapons. But she takes out all three, gets them into her jail cell, and gets the door shut and locked. And I'm just like, they cannot write or choreograph fight scenes for anything. There is no, I don't care that she's an elf, I don't care that she's as tough as a guy, you these are Numenorians. They're also really tough, and they're wearing armor. And Farazon, meanwhile, is like getting ready to intervene and drawing his sword. And Halbrand's like, "I wouldn't do that." And he's like, "Well, I can't just let her go." And he's like, "You can if you know where she's going," meaning he's gonna, you know, 
he's she's gonna go to the king's tower and pay a visit to him so you can just catch her there but can you catch her there since she can overpower three armed guards with no effort whatsoever i don't know can you i mean like ah it it makes absolutely no sense like assuming for sake of argument that you could get all three of the guards in the freaking cell by surprise the fact that none of them had time to even resist enough to push back and not get shut in and locked is just ludicrous. Doesn't work for me. It's bad. They could have written it with just one guard and made it work so much better. With three, it's just like, oh, this is terrible. Meanwhile, Muriel... And, and I don't remember the exact order of events. I'm covering kind of by character more than chronologically here. Muriel we see in this one scene where she's with a bunch of other women and she's talking about the children of Numenor and how they're going to inherit the future of Numenor. And this is where the hammering out our future line comes in, which I thought was so stupid. But anyway, the ground starts to shake and she says something like, sometimes our island needs to balance her. I forget exactly what she said. But then she kind of looks out and there's waves coming up over the island and all, you know, just about to consume the entire island. And then she wakes up. So, you know, makes sense, right? I mean, she's having the the wave of over Numenor dream. And I actually liked this until they ruined it. <laughs> and I'll explain that when I come back to Galadriel. Uh, but they kind of ruin this. I liked it because it's a really interesting illusion that Faramir had, and because Tolkien talks about himself having the same dream and then passing it on to his son Christopher, this is a heritable dream, which means multiple people could potentially have it in history, and it could have been prophetic. So I actually kind of liked that they went with this. It was kind of a cool thing. But then they ruin it later. At any rate, Muriel goes about her business... And she meets Galadriel in the tower. Galadriel apparently scales the entire tower from the outside and breaks in a window from the very top. How that happens, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, she goes in to talk to Palantir, the, the king who is, you know, Muriel's father, and finds Muriel there waiting for her. And, of course, you know, this is... She's taken aback and, like, what's going on here? And then Muriel basically says... You know, my father tried to go back to the ways of the elves, but he was absolutely hated for it, and he had this thing like we were all going to be punished by the gods for going against... And I'm using the term gods, by the way, because that's the term that the show keeps using. I assume they are referring to the Valar. Uh, And this is actually a thing. Like, Tolkien says that gods was a term used by a lot of men for the Valar, so I'm not balking at that. I just want to explain for anybody who's not familiar with that concept that that's why I'm using that term. Anyway, they start having this conversation and and she says that, you know, Palantir was afraid that they were all going to be destroyed by the gods for going against whatever and that's why he was cast out and she's like, "Well, I've been I've been put here in his place." And throughout the conversation, I'm still trying to figure out like are you actually an elf friend or are you against that? Or are you just like, you love your dad and you don't care? It's really hard to tell her motivations. At any rate, she ends up saying, you know, I, we know that there's going to be like this 
in cataclysmic end and you're the first part of this and she shows her the palantir not tar palantir the king a palantir you know uh, the ball the globe of crystal or whatever and galadriel interestingly says like i've touched palantir before and muriel ominously says not this one and so galadriel touches it and she has the same exact thing that muriel dreamed earlier about the wave and Muriel says, this whole thing starts with you. Like, you arriving on the island is what apparently sets this in motion. And Galadriel basically tries to talk her into, you know, well, the going back to your loyalty to the elves and the Valar is the, the way to amend all that and not have the cataclysmic end that your dad is afraid of. And Muriel, for some completely unknown reason, is just convinced that Galadriel is actually the reason and that getting rid of her is what's going to solve the problem. I, she, there's no real reasoning behind that that I can tell other than she's just convinced. Now, here's what I don't like about this whole Palantir scene. Oh, and by the way, Muriel says that there are originally seven, but the other six are lost or hidden. Okay. I'm assuming that means hidden because, <laughs> believe it or not, like... Elendil and his sons end up with seven of them in Middle-earth at the end of the whole thing. Uh, so I'm assuming they've been hidden by the elf friends from the king's men and others. At any rate, the reason I don't like this whole thing is, as I've discussed in a video before, the Palantiri are not magic seeing stones in the traditional sense. They can be used to see things at great distances and to communicate with others who have another stone... They do not see the future. They do not show you prophetic visions. They don't do this kind of thing. On that note, by the way, Galadriel, you know, says something to the effect that, you know, not everything that these things show is necessarily going to come to pass. And it was, it's clearly an echo of what she later will tell Frodo and Sam about her mirror. And to me, this is just like, you're importing ideas to places that they don't belong. Like, just... I understand you're trying to make references to the lore for people who know this stuff, but like just giving me things that I already know from other lore as Easter eggs doesn't make this story any better, and it doesn't make what you're doing with the Palantiri correct. The Palantiri do not give prophetic visions of the future. They let you see somewhere else. They don't even let you hear. Like, in the way that Galadriel goes into it, it's like when she touches it, it's almost like she becomes in the future, or in some kind of dreamlike state where she's actually there experiencing the drowning of Numenor. It's like, that's not what these things do. And Muriel may be trying to make out like this particular Palantir is special, and that's why it does this one thing, but it's, it's just not how they work. And I, I don't like the fact that they get treated like that. It's just, it's not what they do. So... There's that whole thing, and at the end of it, Muriel is basically like, I don't care, you're going to leave. Why Galadriel puts up with that exactly is not clear. She and Muriel and Palantir, who is basically on his deathbed as far as we can tell, is they're the only ones in the room. So why Galadriel suddenly is just demure and doesn't put up a fight or anything is beyond me. Uh, <laughs> but at any rate, the next time we see her, she's being escorted by Elendil to a boat where she's going to be taken to a ship back to Numenor. And after she gets on the boat, Muriel starts walking back to the uh, palace. 
and we get a scene where the white tree is losing all its petals, and then we hear this voiceover of Muriel, which I think was from episode three, where she talks about if they, you know, when they fall, we take that as a sign that the, the gods are ever watchful and they're seeing what we're doing. And then she's like, oh, maybe Caledria was right in sending her away is the wrong thing. So then when we see her make this big announcement, it turns out she is going to go help Middle-earth after all in the Southlands, and she had Galadriel come back, and she's going to escort her personally. And here I have to go back a little bit and talk about Farazon and some other people. This is where the politics comes in. Farazon gets met by his son, who I don't think we ever get his name, but his name is apparently Kimmon. I don't think his name is ever said. And this is another complaint that I've had about this show for a while now. It's like we don't learn people's names. We can't get connected with them. Anyway, his son mainly shows up apparently to end up being introduced and then to kind of get a crush on Aarian. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But Farazon comes in, you know, he's talking to him. And then he comes out to this public square area where one of the guild members that was getting beat up on by Halbrand in the last episode is riling up the crowd, basically saying, you know, Muriel's having an audience with this elf, and what do you, you know, we're going to have elves come in, and they're going to take your gerbs. And No, I'm not kidding. Like, he's saying they're going to take your jobs because they're tireless, they don't sleep, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, did you... mm." And then Farazon, of course, takes the opportunity to basically say, I'll make sure this is always a kingdom of men and we're not going to have any elves. And I'm like, you really went orange man bad, didn't you? You really had to go there. Like, (laughs) my gosh. Keep the politics out of my Tolkien, please. Anyway, that whole thing happens. Aarian is kind of on the sidelines seeing all this happen. Kimmon kind of goes over there and strikes up a little bit of a conversation, but then she gets pulled away rather quickly by somebody in the guild who wants to see her plans or something. And so we don't see much more of Kimmon there. The next time we see Aarian, she is uh, eating with Isildur, who tells her that, and we saw this in a scene earlier, but it has virtually no bearing on anything, uh, that he's been kicked out of the Sea Guard. What happened was he was staring off into the distance again, and he's hearing, I think, it, I forgot to mention this in the previous review I did, but he's hearing the name Isildur, and it's not clear why. Is he hearing it for real? Is he remembering his mother's voice? Because we do find out that his mother's dead, and they lived in the West, and that's why he wants to go back to the West, Numenor. But anyway, he lets a rope go, and it causes a problem, and for some reason, the Seamaster who's training all these cadets says, all right, you're gone, and you two, your two buddies are gone too, by the way. Why he makes the other guys go is not clear, because Isildur admits, yeah, it was my fault. And this, the, the captain guy even says, like, I've seen you do that a hundred times. You did that deliberately. And he, by doing that a hundred times, I mean he's, like, held the rope and done it right a hundred times. And he, So why he makes Isildur and his two buddies go is, like, Why? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, Aarian learns this from Isildur, and they have this conversation about, well, I guess now you can go back west, and Isildur's like, I don't deserve to go back west because I cost my friends their, you know, their potential to get in and all this. And we also, in his conversation with his friends, we get a reference to, like, crazy ideas apparently that his brother has. It's not really clear what they are, but it seems to be building up the idea that we're going to meet Anarian at some point in the future. When? 
what's his deal? We don't know yet. And this is, again, one of those things where it's like we're getting introduced to these characters, but we don't have enough information about them to get invested. We know that Isildur is not super happy about being a cadet getting into the Sea Guard, but that's kind of all we know about him, and it's kind of just a cliche thing. Anyway, Aarian, after talking with Isildur, it gets told, hey, you need to go, you know, mop the floor and fill goblets. And it's like, this, this is where my vague suspicion that I mentioned earlier comes in. I am vaguely suspicious that they are going to make her the put-upon female in a male world that gets given all of the, like, unpaid intern tasks. Like, she's the one that's going to be told to get everybody's coffee and whatever, and all the boys are just going to be doing their normal work. Now, I don't know that because she is clearly doing architect stuff for the Builders Guild. But after she's given this task, for whatever reason, Kimmin comes up again and tries to strike up conversation. And he's clearly, like, trying to ask her out on a date, basically, because he ends up saying... She tells him that, you know, I've got to fill goblets and mop floors, and apparently mopping floors is good for dexterity, according to the whoever's teaching her or whatever. And he says, okay, well, you do this job, and I'll do that job, and whoever finishes last buys dinner. How about that? And she says, well, I don't really do things with strange men. And he's like, well, that's good advice. If I find any, I'll let you know. So, I mean, like, pickup lines. That's really all we get from Kimmin, and we still know really nothing about Aarian except that she's friendly with Isildur and that she's in the Builders Guild. It's like, what What do we know about any of these people that we care about? Why are they here? What's the point? What's the purpose? I, anyway, that's kind of all that happens with them. And all that we really get otherwise is an announcement that, yep, they're going to go invade Numenor. And our Farazon, well, not our Farazon, I keep wanting to call him that. Farazon basically makes kind of an announcement after Muriel has decided, yeah, we're going to go. And he said, the queen has laid bare her intentions, which sounds like he's about to go into a oppositional framework of, but this is a bad idea and we really shouldn't be helping no elves. But then he just says, here's what we're going to do. Get it ready. And I'm like, that's a really weird way to phrase that. And I, it's it's either just bad writing or it's hinting at the fact that he's going to be in opposition to Muriel later on, but just isn't willing to put his neck out yet. I'm <laughs> not sure which. But that's pretty much the end of the episode. So, yeah, my overall impressions, as I mentioned earlier, not a whole lot happened here. Galadriel finally gets Muriel's, you know, okay to, like, we're going to go help and clear out the Southlands of Orcs. But it took a bunch of unnecessary scenes to get there. We got an orange man bad scene, which didn't contribute to a whole lot. I mean, we could have very easily covered the hostility of the Numenorians to elves in a way that didn't involve any kind of modern political issue at all. That would have been so easy to do. Why they had to inject modern politics in it, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Why we care about Kimmon and Aarian, don't know. I mean, like, these characters are here for no apparent reason. Isildur, I know why he's here, but only because I know what the story is at the end, because he's going to be going with Elendil to Middle-earth when Numenor sinks beneath the waves. Spoiler. I, like, I know why Isildur's in the story, but I don't know what they're going to do with the story. I have no idea why Aarian is in the story. I have no idea why Kimmon is in the story. 
I still don't really know why Halbrand is in the story, really. Uh, so, just this whole thing, it's just, it seems like this episode was almost a waste of time. Because so little happened. I know it seems like a lot happened after I talked about it, but like when you really boil it down to what plot movement there was, it was like there was a lot of things with personal drama that was kind of unnecessary on everybody's part. And then, you know, Galadriel never learns her lesson. She like listens to Halbrand long enough to get the idea that, oh, you know what, you're right, that's kind of smart. Maybe I should start thinking instead of just beating people up. Immediately beats up guards, somehow. So, yeah, I mean, like, watching the show, nothing made me hate it other than the whole political scene and, a, you know, the fight scene that wasn't a fight because the three guys didn't put up any fight. And then, you know, but nothing really made me very interested either. Elrond is an interesting character, so that's good. But beyond that, it's just so meh. Like, it's just, I, I don't know if I'm getting to the point that I don't care and that's why the episode seemed lame, or if I don't care because the episode is lame. Because it just, after episode three, my expectations went so far down. Now, there's the problems that were in episode three, episode four isn't that bad in terms of the just inconsistent writing, but... Just overall, this episode just seemed like a big nothing to me. So that's, you know, that's where we're leaving episode four. We are now halfway through the season, and maybe something interesting will happen next week. Gosh, I hope so. But man, I do not want to see the Harfoots, and I'm sure we're going to. And yeah, I mean, like, I almost forgot about the Harfoots while I was doing this, and now I'm thinking about the Harfoots again, and I'm just depressed. I don't. Like, I don't want it. Like, the Harfoots don't belong in this story. The only thing they're there for is to be some kind of frame for the stranger, and we don't have any clue what he even is. And he has no business being in the story. Ugh. The problems are mounting. And it's, most of them are kind of small, but a lot of them are just like, why did you need to make that change? It was so unnecessary. It was, why did you need to be really bad at writing? Why did you, why couldn't you just, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, if I can make it through this season, that may be about all I can handle of Rings of Power at the rate we're going. I just, it's not so good that if it wasn't a Lord of the Rings show, I would even have been that interested in watching it, honestly. Uh, it's, it's the kind of thing that I would put on as something in the background to not pay attention to. Kind of like my wife did. <laughs> Except in my case, I really can't pay attention to two things at once. So it's really more like, it's in the background and it's there and it's kind of like, just floating. But that's it. So, this isn't the worst episode so far. Episode 3 was worse. But episode 4 has its bad moments. And it, they really, really need to make something happen. And they really need to improve their writing. And for goodness sake, stay away from fight scenes because you can't choreograph them. Find a good fight scene choreographer. Please! So with that said, I will see you next week for another one of these. I will see you Monday for a regularly scheduled video. And I'll even see you on Thursday next week for Hobbit Day. Because I'm going to be putting out a special video just for Hobbit Day next week. In addition to my regularly scheduled video. 
which is the first time I've ever done that, and there's going to be several other YouTubers doing the same thing, of course. Uh, but until that time, I am the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all my Patreon and Utreon supporters, including Ringbearers Ego Voice and Emir Ali, and Elf Friends PA Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan DeFore, and Paul Leone.